We're Eternals. For 7,000 years, we protected humans from the deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos? Or any war, or all the other terrible things throughout history? We were instructed not to interfere. Until now. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we conclude Eternals Week here on Kirby's Kids with a special encore edition of our 2020 Kirby Roundtable, focusing in on the Eternals. This is Angus. I want to thank everyone for taking the journey with us this week as we are celebrating the cinematic premiere of Jack Kirby's singular vision, The Eternals, as it enters into the MCU. In addition to this encore presentation, I would like to draw everyone's attention to two comic books that have recently come out in celebration of The Eternals. The first up is The Eternals facsimile edition of the first issue of The Eternals that Jack King Kirby would write, draw, and bring to life for Marvel. This includes all of the wonderful ads of the day. It is truly a nostalgic piece, but most importantly, for those of you who are not familiar with Jack's Eternals run, this is a great first start. It's the first issue. It's the introduction to the series, and for those who owned this issue at one point in their lifetime, but it became too ratty or was thrown away or can't find it anymore, this is a great trip down memory lane. Now, it is available to you if you are a subscriber to the Marvel Unlimited subscription service, but it is also available on Comixology, and I will leave the link in the show notes. In addition to this fine singular work, there is also the Eternals Never Die, Never Win edition. This is a free comic book. Yes, folks, go over to Comixology. You can download it for free. What this does is introduces you to the latest series of the Eternals. There is a brief interview with the author of the series. In addition to that, you have the sketches from the series. You have the pencilings of the beginning of that story. It teases it out, so it gives you a flavor of what you will be expecting in the series. None of the colors are in there or the inks or anything, but it is a great display visually of the story and where it will be taking you. There is also a nice little primer in there of concept art of how they chose to render the Eternals characters. You have Cersei, Makari, Thena, Icarus, Kingo, Sprite, Zurus, and that also gives you an indication stylistically of where this brand new Eternals series is heading. Again, all in celebration of the Eternals premiere on the big screen here. So now let's go back in time to 2020 to the Kirby Roundtable and listen in on the kids' discussion on Jack King Kirby's Eternals and then Neil Gaiman's take on Jack's characters in his version of The Eternals. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we round out Jack Kirby Month here on Kirby's Kids with the Kirby Roundtable and all four of your hosts. I am so pleased to welcome Ray, JJ, and Doc. How are you guys doing? Doing awesome. How are you today? Hi, everybody. Hey, it's good to be here. All right. So, fellas, let's get to it. We read both the first 11 issues, which was put into volume one of a graphic novel of Jack Kirby's Eternals, 
in addition to the Neil Gaiman seven-issue limited series that was also put into a graphic novel that then came out in the mid-2000s here. So quite the epic span of time and evolution of these characters. And at first, let's focus in on Jack Kirby and his run. And our first question for everyone is, who was your favorite character from Jack Kirby's run of The Eternals? JJ, let's start with you. Well, mine, after much due consideration, is Cersei. I think she's the only Eternal that seems to be at home on Earth, and that's probably because she's the one that seems to have spent the most time around humans. If memory serves, she was the one mainstreamed as an Avenger, and I think that just, there's something about her personality that makes her very approachable, very likable. She's a very strong-willed character, doesn't take guff from anyone, and um, really seems to be a very independent character. And I don't know if we're playing with honorable mentions or not. I would like to mention Crow the Deviant. I would have loved to have seen more of him. I think, um, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more about the nature of the different characters, but I think there was one that, there was a lot of potential there to tap in for um, uh, expanded story. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a cool choice. And Crow is on my list too for the honorable mention. Um, it's interesting that in this series, some of the secondary characters are the most developed. Um, and so for me, I feel like one of those that was a really actualized or a realized character was Thena, and she was my favorite. I, I liked her mostly because she sat at the center of uh, these different. Com- complex relationships. So she, um, you know, visited the uh, Lemuria where the deviants were, and had that um, uh, sort of rescued two people there. There was the uh, the giant carcass, big red dude in a diaper, and uh, <laughs> and uh, the the reject. Um, and so, and then she had that interesting sideline with Crow, where they're might've been a kind of faded love affair there. I just thought she was pretty fascinating as a character at the center of a lot of different things. Well, uh, JJ kind of stole my thunder cause I am definitely going with Cersei as well. Um, this was, um, I didn't even have to think about this one. Um, Cersei was one of those characters. I really enjoyed um, looking for her in, in these, in, uh, in Kirby's run. Um, I was really interested in seeing like, you know, her more of her past where she was going. Um, and the fact that she was such a strong female, um, her character, she was a little bit more kind of like playful and mischievous. And uh, I, I, like JJ said, she was comfortable among humans. Um, I kind of like that about her as well, that she seemed more at home with humans than she did with her own kind kind of deal. So I kind of, I, I really enjoyed that part. And I could say that I also liked her character in, um, in, in Gaiman's run as well, which I know we'll get to a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, she was, she was definitely my top pick. And um, if we are doing runners up, um, and it's more of a concept. I really like the uh, the idea of the Unimind, and I really wanted to see more of that. So that would be my runner-up. Wow, Doc, nice uh, selection there, and a good shout-out there to the Unimind. Uh, well, you know what? I'm going to make it four for four here as far as female characters are concerned. My favorite was also Thena, uh, along with Rey. Strong female character, a leader and a warrior. She recognized the value of the Deviants and wasn't dismissive of them. I really liked that about her. A lot of intrigue with her relationship with Crow and the result being she was a great bridge character between those 
two races. So what do you think it says about us that, or about the series that we all selected the female characters uh, as, as our favorites? Well, it's certainly most developed for sure. And maybe JJ, that spoke of the times. Well, certainly the 1970s was part of the ERA movement. Um, but at the same time, you have uh, Thena and Cersei compare compare those two strong characters to Margot Damien, the damsel in distress. Uh, so she's the daughter of Professor Damien, who is part of the uh, research, the um, archaeological research of the Incan ruins in the Andes. And she pretty much plays that damsel in distress card the whole time. While meanwhile, here are these two um, strong-willed eternals that play counterpoint to that. Like, hey, here's like all the things you could be, but she never really rises to that. I think that's a good point, JJ. But just as Icarus and Makari sort of usher her around, you know, one arm on her, uh, one hand on her arm, steering her uh, and dragging her along. You also have the. We also have a man in that situation. The professor, I uh, can't think of his name, but the anth- uh, anth- archaeologist, anthropologist that Cersei drags along, he's also kind of a, what would you say, a bumbler and not very, um, a character with a lot less agency. So while, while it is very tempting to look at Margot as kind of the counterpoint, to, uh, I think it's just, it, you're looking at maybe just two levels of characters there. Mm-hmm. Well, and early on, I think we saw some shining examples of human characters that stood out. There was the police captain that stood up to the fire blasts of the deviants when they attacked New York. And there's this great panel of him chin up profile with these blasts of fire going past him and he's holding his ground. And I think there was something maybe something missed here, but something that could be said about, um, you know, the ability to uh, rise on certain levels to, you know, basically stand side by side of the Eternals. Are there things in the Eternals that we also as humans have and uh, vice versa? Are there elements of the Eternals that they, you know, share with humans? I think the the point was on what are their differences? Ooh, look at all these cool things that they can do. Yeah, JJ, those are great points there as far as the compare and contrast amongst all the different races. And Ray, great pull there with respect to the male uh, figure, the human that Cersei was dragging around with her to everything. He was, it almost got comical in some instances. But I, I just want to make one comment with respect to Jack's treatment of women in comics and, and really his respect for women. I, you know, this goes back to as early as 1957 in, in comics, Dr. June Robbins from Challengers of the Unknown. She was affectionately known as the fifth challenger amongst many of the readers. She was a computer scientist and an archaeologist and written with a lot of care and very forward thinking as far as a female professional in comics is concerned. And I'll also go to Jack's wife, Roz. That was a life partner, Uh, not just a, a, a spouse or 
a traditional role for uh, you know women of the time. Yes, Roz did primarily take care of the family that she and Jack were creating together, but she was also Jack's inker and enabler. She drove Jack everywhere. Jack was a horrible driver because he couldn't concentrate on the road because he had so many different ideas going in his head. So I truly feel that, that Jack has a lot of reverence and respect. Uh, for women in general. So I'm not surprised by these portrayals of these characters in The Eternals. I really love Jack's stories that involve Roz. She must have been quite a person. She strikes me as an almost like an Eleanor Roosevelt type. Um, You know, she would run interference when the when the kids would hang out in his basement and he'd be giving away his drawings and things like that. She'd run interference if they got got into his uh, creative space too much. And she just seemed like a very strong and, like you said, a really great partner for him. So, yeah, I I, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right, Angus, that he that, that Jack is somebody who clearly had a lot of respect for and admiration of strong, strong women. So with that, I know we're all kind of chomping at the bit here to get into the meat and of what this Eternals comic book was all about. You know, why is it so important to the Marvel Universe in terms of story, mythology, characters, and art? Ray, let's hit it off with you first. I loved while we were reading this, you had sent a message saying, oh my gosh, here is a whimsical nod to Rock'em Sock'em Robots. (laughs) Yeah, there were some great, there were some great moments in here. Jack has that kind of epic just it's just his nature right that everything is epic you have a feeling that when that you wouldn't want to get too close to him while he was talking because his arms would probably flailing around you know yeah he's he's a larger than life character and it comes through now i i don't think this is his best work from a a drawing perspective uh, you know i say perspective but i don't mean to confuse the terms there uh from a viewpoint from a drawing viewpoint it's still good it's still got great kirby two-page spreads that just knock you out and it's still incredibly detailed. Like if you look at the background, something that's really missing from the game and panels, they feel a little flatter because they don't have those detailed backgrounds. You know, it's kind of a digital age tradition where a lot of the backgrounds are done with textures and, and uh, different digital tricks to kind of fill in space and, and make things go a little faster and get some cool atm- atmospheric effects too. But yeah, I miss those out of Jack's drawings. I don't know. There's, I think then, and I think this is something that Scott and I have talked about, and he would probably agree with me, is that the character faces get a little muddy on this one. Is it, did you feel that way, Scott? I did. I did. I kind of felt like we were looking at the same face with different haircuts and styles and colors over and over again. But like like you said, though, the, the overall though, the art is it's splashy and it's just it's um. In some ways, it's typical Kirby and good old Kirby, and I did like it overall. But I just felt like with a lot of the, some of the characters' faces, like even the females and the males, tended to look alike in this one. And it was a little bit, um, it was a little jarring. It kind of took me out of the story a couple times. It was like, hey, I just saw that person like in three panels ago in a different in a different setting, kind of thing. So um, yeah, other than that, but it's. Uh, that was probably the only complaint I had about the art. It is classic Kirby, though. You can see influences from Commandi and all kinds of different, um, you know, past things that he's drawn uh, pulling into there. And he he's always had kind of a limited range of, of character types. I, I was listening to a podcast a, a few weeks ago where they were talking about a famous actor who was very methodical, and he 
um, he was speaking to, he was mentoring someone and he says, I really only have 10 characters, right? And when I pick a role, I decide which of the 10 characters they are. And then I, he's like, oh, well, he's clearly a number two, but a little angrier. And I feel like Jack has this sort of, you know, cast of faces that he uses and they kind of go with personalities too. So you usually get a, a face and a personality kind of tied together. And uh, sometimes he does interesting things with that. Like I think Carcass in this one is an interesting one because he's got a little bit of a, um, a mutt face like the dog people from Commandi, but he's really a throwback to, you know, Jack's monster comics. Right. But he is, uh, even though he looks uh, like, like the thing or like a monster, he's got a very intellectual and human viewpoint uh, to him, which makes him super interesting. So Jack's, Jack's hitting on a lot of levels here, but it is typical Kirby art. So JJ, I know you had some, very personal ties to this comic. Would you share that with the audience? Oh, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So the Eternals is Eternals. Number one was actually the second comic book I ever purchased. And it was the first series that I ever followed from the beginning. And I think it had a profound impact. The very first comic I ever purchased was master of Kung Fu number 42 and this was 19 summer of 1976 so here's the two things that you know was prevalent of the times martial arts uh with the onslaught of of the chop sake films from china and the ideas of space gods and ufos and creatures from outer space so it's kind of funny that the first two books that i ever really got involved in were not were not superhero related purely from that perspective i mean obviously they had heroic elements and you know they have superheroic abilities and they have costumes and so they fall into that genre but first and foremost this is a um this is a science fiction piece really it was one of the things that just got me interested in it now this is absolutely a a feast for the eyes i think that this is some of kirby's best work i will absolutely concede the point that kirby has a sort of shorthand that i think we've talked about where faces convey certain personalities and certain looks and i think that's what he does is he's he strives for the archetypical and that's one of the ways that he can quickly convey ideas but i think one of the things that ray was kind of pointing to is the fact that his backgrounds just seem so deep you know whether it's the eternals on top of uh, a, a mountain in olympia or uh, the deviants building weapons to conquer the earth or fend off the space gods the celestials there's there's such a depth to what he does and you know maybe digitizing the backgrounds the way we do nowadays isn't you know as a shorthand is doing a disservice to the way that things you know, things are portrayed. So yeah, this has um, definitely been something to, it's absolutely worth reading. But as far as the epicness of this, what I think the biggest contribution that, that Kirby made was the Celestials. And they're more colossal than Galactus, more unknowable than the Watchers. So they're in this class all by themselves. They were probably some of the first cosmic beings and we've seen their their presence now in the mcu 
And hopefully with the coming of the movie, we'll see more of them and how they shaped things to come. JJ, those are all really great insights. And I'm actually highly envious of your Eternals experience of the 70s because I, I didn't have that experience. And it wasn't until just now that I got to experience what Jack was trying to create. And I'm sure that must have been a mind-blowing experience for a kid going, buying a comic to see there on the stands and go, wow, what in the world is this? This is amazing. For me, this work is important on several fronts. Number one, it brought Jack back to Marvel. It demonstrates Jack was still relevant, although, Ray, I'll agree with you, it is not his best work, but it was still very epic and grand in scale. I love his embracing of ancient aliens as an inspiration, as that was very much in the zeitgeist of the day, with having you know Chariots of the Gods being a very popular novel that came out in 1968, then that movie that came out in the 70s, and then just its proliferation in so many different art forms, inspiring different stories to be told. The art's grand in scale. I also will echo that there are lots of familiar faces in here, from both New Gods to Commandi, Reachbacks to classic Kirby monster comics. Ray, that's an outstanding point. That is the monster outside my window is the start then for the evolution of that carcass character. And just was I was I was looking at that and I'm going, wait a second, didn't I cover that last year when I was covering Kirby monster comics? And indeed, that was one. And the Eternals as a property, I think it's been a slow burn for Marvel here. It was received warmly, but it, it wasn't a runaway hit. But they were picked up by writer Roy Thomas when he was doing Thor at the time and became a story arc run in Thor from issues 283 through 301, which was then completed by writers Mark Grunwald and Ralph Macchio and then rebooted and updated by Neil Gaiman. So the concept of the Eternals then permeated throughout the Marvel Universe to the point that Thanos was declared an Eternal, but from the planet Titan. Uh, Kronos was introduced in Iron Man number 55 in 1973 and was also made an Eternal and made Zerus's father and Thanos' grandfather. So this retconning, if you will, or integrating of the Eternals into the MCU came slowly over time, but made Jack's contribution here oh so important. But this was not Jack's original intent or the creation of this world, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely think that the uh, something has been lost. And I think one of the things that's come up most recently to my mind is in, and I'm pretty certain this is only in the more recent writings and especially in the, the Gaiman one, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but the fact that the Eternals are painted as the protectors of Earth. And that's, if you go back to the original source, Kirby never intended that. There were three races created for seemingly no purpose at all. And the Celestials came back in multiple hosts to see how things were doing. You know, how were they, how were things going on? And, you know, what is becoming of their experiment, if you will? And they've been painted as the role of the protectors of Earth. And I think the part of that is so that they could be tied into the Marvel Universe more tightly. Within the actual series, you never see another superhero. Uh, you see the head of Ben Grimm as the thing, but that's Cersei playing a trick on people. And 
stories with the Hulk are really a robot that happens to get cosmic powered as some fallout of the, the uni mind. The only characters that seem to be actual carryovers or crossovers from the Marvel universe are shield agents. And they're referred to as Nick Fury's shield agents. But other than that, there really is nothing to set them apart. Considering that the deviants are totally trashing New York and the Avengers never showed up. So uh, I think I think it really is kind of a disservice to uh, they get washed out, right? And you know who cares about Icarus when you've got Captain America and Iron Man and Thor and so on and so forth? And you've got these other gods, these other established mythologies, whereas absolutely in Kirby story for the Eternals, they are the inspiration for all these other mythologies. They're the reason people believe in Thor and in Gilgamesh and in all the other mythologies. So it really, really is a disservice. So hopefully I, I didn't digress too much there. No, JJ, actually you set up what really begs the question next is, do we feel that the same level of influence at Marvel was felt with the Eternals? that Kirby's new gods reached at DC. Doc, you being the DC guy that you are, I want to throw this one first over to you. What are your feelings on that? I, th I, think, the, I think the new gods had more of an impact um, right off the bat off of um, on the rest of the, uh, of the, of the DC universe. Um, you know, we see constant time and time, time, and time again that uh, Darkseid is always going up against the Justice League and, you know, he pops up in these different in, in different places and things like that. Whereas, like you said, it was a little bit more of a gradual folding in of the Eternals into the greater MCU. Uh, so I, I think in, in that case, um, and, and, but the same thing, I mean, the New Gods was not a runaway hit uh, at DC with fans, just like the Eternals wasn't a huge runaway hit with, with Marvel fans. But I think over time, it's like the editorial, um, like the people behind the scenes, they kind of saw the value of the Eternals and the New Gods. They could really add a lot of mythology. They could do a lot of explaining. Um, I mean, it got to the point with the Eternals that um, they went back to the pre-Marvel time, the precursor to Marvel Comics. It's timely comics that was around in the 1940s. Like, the, like characters like the Hurricane and Mercury, they went back and they made those two characters from timely comics that they were just guises of the eternal um uh, uh makari does that pronounce that right makari makari you know the one that's that has the the, the speed so i mean when they went that far back to retcon different characters to make them part of the eternals whereas uh i think in dc it was always um even though that new god that realm of the new gods always kind of sat outside DC universe, as far as some of the continuity, I think it was always, it always played a little bit more of, a, of an influence, I think, in a lot of um, different storylines. I mean, we just saw it recently, just five, six years ago with one of the um, Green Lantern um, Godhead storylines, where it was the Green Lanterns versus the New Gods looking for um, trying to get to the source wall and all this kind of good stuff that was going on. But we still see how it's, it's a good influence. So I think um, it was a little bit more at the time. Um, but I think now there's no denying that the Eternals has definitely become a really entrenched part of of Marvel. And I see both sides. I kind of see like kind of a little bit of a disservice to Kirby, but I also see Kirby just gave this huge influence to Marvel, and he didn't even realize what he had, what he was sitting on. 
So I thought I, I really I really like that idea though that that his ideas really shaped the MCU because they always have from the beginning whether he whether he wanted them to or not. Well, I don't feel that the Eternals really have had as much of an impact as the New Gods. I mean, besides the Celestials and Cersei, Cersei reached the mainstream. She was an Avenger, but other than that, they they've always been these kind of background characters and i know that they've worked more and more to bring them part of the marvel universe and gaiman's work is certainly a big push in that direction to make them more mainstream but the new gods are incredibly vibrant and they are a vital part of the dcu on all fronts uh there are there are characters throughout from both sides, from Apocalypse and New Genesis, that have made lasting impacts and really just been a part of the chorus of the DCU um, since their introduction. And I think the difference there is they were introduced as part of the DCU. You had Superman and my pal Jimmy Olsen, you know, encountering the first inklings of what was going on with the fourth world. There was a lot of that involvement that, hey, this is DC universe. And, um, you know, Eternals, not so much. They've had to work on it after the after the point. So New Gods was uh, a great read. It was a half a step better in art. Just when I say, you know, the Eternals isn't Kirby at his best, it's still very, very good Kirby. But I saw some things in New Gods that I didn't quite see. Uh, I didn't quite see the um, that I didn't quite see in the in the Eternals, like the collage of uh, use that he did, uh, which was a big thing for Jack, right? You see more that used several times in New Gods. I think New Gods had a larger number of characters that I was interested in, things that I would like to see more story about, like Black Racer. Yeah, thank you. One with the skis. <laughs> I mean, there were so many great characters in that one. Um, but I think this one, uh, The Eternals, has a better story. And I really like the the mythology, the sort of scale, the the mythicality of it, if that's a word. It's super epic and, and in some ways self-contained, and it doesn't mix all that well with the Marvel Universe until it's made to later. I think this is another case where Kirby was promised, you know, come on over to our house and we'll let you do whatever you want, right? And then he does a lot of whatever he wants, and then they start telling him things like, okay, but mix in some Marvel characters. And so we see, you know, him thumbing his nose at Marvel a couple times and you've already touched on those uh where you get ben Grimm's head but it's you know the thing's head but it's not really the thing and you get the hulk but it's not really the hulk he didn't really make a particular effort to blend in uh, in the way that when we talk about game and game and actually did a, a great job and made him better effort to blend him in but i just love I, I love i mean you've got these mythical places like M- lemuria and the polar mountains right that don't get brought up a lot later um you get the then you get names for the gods for the for the actual celestials uh like Arishim and nezar and and hargan they have these kind of strange names but you don't get they're so unaccessible in other ways they're they're these big robotic you know, characters that, well, not even characters, forces, right? They're larger than, not only larger than life, they're like just out of scale. They're kaiju-like. 
and you you just can't know them. And uh, I, I like that inaccessibility, that mystery. I like the fact that the Eternals are unnumbered in Kirby, that you have no idea how many there are, and that they have obviously been showing up throughout human history as different forms of gods. And so he, he can place this quote unquote clever wordplay with, you know, Makari and Mercury, right? And Fina as opposed to Athena. Uh and then, <laughs> you know, thinly veiled variations on their names. I just I, I just really appreciate that kind of that kind of epic scale. Uh, the deviants seemed well, I guess let me um uh, I get kind of excited and I'll start talking over myself. But the 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 three species, uh so the gods come to Earth, the celestials come to Earth in the past, they've come four times now and they created three different species and the deviants are kind of like their first experiment. And then they go on to make humans and then they go on to make celestials. And you get this sense that they're improving each time on, on the making of these species. And that's what, for me, I have this huge uh, soft spot in my heart for the deviants because of that. They are, they remind me very much of Lucifer from paradise lost, you know, where um, they're the, the ones that were sort of cast out and forgotten by their creators or abused by their creators. At one point they literally eat them. They like sweep them up. They come back to earth and the deviants have taken over and they suck them all up and I don't know, grind them back into proteins. I'm not really sure what they do with them there. So, so there's just, I mean, it's just super epic in a way that, and, and when, Marvel, uh, or when when they became more mainstreamed into Marvel, you see a lot of things. They numbered the Celestials. Sorry, they numbered numbered the Eternals. So there's like a hundred of them now, or something. And then they didn't want humans to be made by the Celestials. So now it's that's not true either. And there's a, just a number of these kind of like watering down and and loss of loss of that pure vision that I that I don't love. Right. I mean, as much as I like some of the things they did, I prefer that, you know, chariots of the gods all in mythical over the top structure that Jack built. I like the fact that in Kirby's work, he does talk about the fact that their eternals breed much more slowly, but they're immune to time. And so he didn't feel the need to set some sort of limit. And that to me seemed great because then you could feel like they were more widely spread. There were these pockets of Eternals living all around the world at that point. Indeed. And what that really goes to show is the breadth and depth with which they took the foundation that Jack introduced and then worked with that over time. And really, for an initial hit, I don't think the influence here was massive. Uh, when this was introduced, it looked to a lot of the readers to be either just a variation on a theme, because after all, Jack just came over from DC. It just birthed new gods over there, as where even though, Doc, you were bringing up that oh, for DC readers, new gods wasn't a runaway hit, I think due to the fact that it was so different. And then you also had the forever people on top of that. And then DC writers were cherry picking portions of new gods and elevated dark side into this big bad hands down new gods, forever people, that entire fourth world mythos uh, way, 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 way exceeded the initial impact for the DC universe that Eternals then did for Marvel. Now, that being said, once we start to transition over to Neil Gaiman and him getting a hold of Kirby's baby here, 
whoa, we start now to elevate the game, the impact, the influence of the Eternals, while also acknowledging the work that was done by Roy Thomas and others, particularly in the Thor series, to give those Eternals more of an integration, entry into the Marvel canon, and then utilizing them now as we're seeing in the cinematic universe, which really now I think is a prime time for us to go into our second read, which is Neil Gaiman's Eternals run. And this was a seven-issue limited series. And JJ, what are your thoughts with regard to the influence on the legacy of the Eternals here that Gaiman provided in his run? Well, I definitely think that Gaiman's Eternals is serving as a reboot for a new generation. At the beginning of this, none of the Eternals realize that they're Eternals except for Icarus. Icarus is the only one that seems to have any sort of memory. All the rest of them are living as humans and going about their daily lives as if nothing's nothing's been done. So it's like you're starting with a clean slate. And he takes most of what Jack put forth and represents it as hey, this is the history of the group. And he did make some changes that we've already talked about. I really think this was a new set of Eternals for a new generation, really embracing them as special and superheroic, putting them in the context of superheroes, usually using the languages of superheroes that has been established now over the decades. And I really think that it's more to a current comic reader's sensibility, more to their expectations of what that is that you're looking for. The slick digital coloring, the backgrounds, the action, Makari looking more like a speedster than Jack ever drew him. You you never got the, you got the sense that he was interested in speed, but you never really got the sense that he was a speedster himself. But with uh, Johnny Ramita Jr., you really got the sense of him as a speedster. For me, Cersei is still my favorite in this. Really thought that he nailed that presentation of her character, but I think that he went a long way to adding some life and breathing some life into Makari, who's kind of the main everyman that you're following throughout the course of the miniseries. Yeah, I think Gaiman brought a lot to the table here. Um, we're clearly in the hands of a better storyteller. He's he's more nuanced and interweaves his plot more and you could tell he's thinking ahead in a way that Jack just didn't. I mean, Jack's a great storyteller, but he's, uh, you know, knocking the doors bombastic. How can I one up myself? Right. <laughs> kind of storytelling. Whereas Gaiman is a lot more in it for the, for building mystery and intrigue and depth. And I, I really like what he did with it. He makes it more of a human story, which is interesting. So we mentioned that there were several two dimensional human characters in, in, Jack's story. It was more about the deviants and the Eternals, right? This Gaiman's is more about the human characters in a lot of ways. And even, even though it's about the Eternals, they sort of start off human. They, they don't know that they're Eternals, right? And they have, and they feel very much like just hu human beings. Uh, and so you get a picture of, you know, Athena with a child and, and you get um, Sprite who is, a ridiculous character in Jack's comic book, not a good character, um, made into an amazing character here in Gaiman. It's he's the eternal kid who doesn't want it. He wants to grow up, right? He's uh, 
Peter Pan who's done with being Peter Pan. He's tired of being dismissed as the kid. So he has these great character motivations. And I I really appreciate that. And I think he did a a wonderful job of feathering in the Marvel universe. Uh, So you get all the comments about, uh, you know, you should get registered and uh, appearances by Iron Man and all that. And that's, that's awesome. I just don't love the, to me, it just, even though I prefer, I prefer Jack's story, I can acknowledge this is probably better, a better uh, written comic overall, but I miss uh, things like, I don't like that um, Gaiman's deviants are these kind of Lovecraftian cookie cutter villains. Um, I think they were much more developed in Jack's story. Uh, I don't like the um, the way that you can sort of know a celestial a little bit. There's just a little bit more of an affinity there. He's like broadcasting his mind through people. So you're getting kind of a, I wouldn't call it an insider look, but they're more accessible in this one. So there, there are things I don't like, but I recognize very, very well done comic. Doc, you like this one better, I think. What, what was your thoughts on? Yeah, I, I did. I, you know, and there's, there's nothing solid that I can pinpoint why I like Gaiman's, uh, why I should say enjoyed it more um, than Kirby's. I enjoyed Kirby's immensely. I, it was, it was a really, it was a really fun read, but for some reason I found myself when I, when I finished Kirby's and I even read more than um, past issue 11, cause I wanted to get kind of more of the story um, that I was getting interested in. Um, but when I went over to, to uh, start reading Gaiman's, I just found myself that I was looking forward more to getting back to Gaiman's story and seeing where it was going. You know, just like the little things like with the, with the character Sprite. I really enjoyed that Sprite was a little bit more fleshed out because it was kind of the throwaway character um, in Kirby's. Um, and it was just one of those things that, that, that Gaiman just decided, oh, I'm going to take this character. I'm going to make, you know, make it basically a, a focus of the plot line kind of deal. But the, um, I mean, I have to say I probably enjoyed the art more in Kirby's than uh than gamins but the story itself it just um i don't know like i said it's nothing i could pinpoint i just found myself in um, looking forward to getting back to it and seeing what was going on i loved i also really loved cersei in gamin's story as well she was my favorite character by far i liked that she was she she didn't she had no clue where what her origins were that she was an eternal she was kind of like this a free spirit kind of um, so to speak and uh, she organized big events and parties and she loved being around humans. And um, I think even if she did know that she was an eternal with these powers, that she would choose to decide to stay among humans because that's what she—that's who she felt more comfortable with. And I just really liked seeing her story um, expanded on. But yeah, I did—I did enjoy uh, uh, Gaiman's a little bit more um, for reasons that I still don't understand myself. <laughs> At one point you brought up the, you said the phrase you were looking, you were more interested in what was going to happen next. And I think that's, uh, that's a, a key phrase for the difference that really, for me, pinpoints, I, I felt kind of the same way. Kirby's, I was almost reading it, looking for dictionary items. Like I want to know more about that world, that setup. with Gaiman. I was looking at the story and waiting to see what, you know, what, when the shoes were going to fall. And it's funny, like all the things that if Kirby were to read Gaiman's, he would have probably hated the things that I kind of enjoyed about it. Like the fact that Iron Man did pop in there, you know, and he was, they were making it more of part of the bigger MCU world. I like, I kind of like those little nods and, you know, those kind of, um, those little intrusions from the rest of the Marvel universe in there. But, um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoy, I think both are, definitely worth the read especially if you're a kirby fan but if just in general you're just great stories on both of them i thought jj and ray i believe both sending over comments while we were reading had brought up a possible source of inspiration that gaiman may have used with respect to this reawakening of 
the Eternals here on Earth and a story trope that he might have tapped into? Well, certainly the amnesia aspect of the characters. Like for me, it reminded me of the main character from the Amber series who begins. There's some similarities here. The the beings that are able to walk between all the different planes of the multiverse and he doesn't know who he is and just as waking up from a, a car accident and slowly gets embroiled into these these family family politics if you will is very similar and and echoes very much what we kind of see happening to Makari's character who was like oh I've always been a doctor and that's what I've always wanted to be and just being able to portray what's going on and be able to tell them, hey, this is what you're forgetting. Because to an entire generation or more, all of this is new stuff. They haven't encountered this stuff before. So how do you frame it in such a way as to be able to dump a bunch of exposition on readers? Oh, I just was to say another thing he carried forward was this idea of the, the celestial that got left behind. It's very cleverly pulled forward from just one box in volume two of Kirby's story where they activate this translator that shows them a little bit of a movie of what happened during the second host. And it says, it was during the visit of the second celestial host to Earth that the space gods fought amongst themselves and one of them was destroyed. And, you know, Gaiman, like, takes that one all the way, right? <laughs> That's a central part of this story. And I think it was really cool that he, that he took, uh, took that one on board. And actually, Ray, you brought up something that in my reading, I found that the deviants in Gaiman just seemed to be so weak. In, in the sense, weak in the sense of they were all the same. They had, you know, cartoon motivations, but they had this quasi-religion around the fallen celestial that was, the celestial was brought down because they, the celestials had created the deviants as food. And they saw this one as their protector, and that's why they were striving to bring them up. And I took that completely as face value and as Gaiman rewriting rewriting what Kirby did. But you had you had made a point that, well, maybe that's just what they believed. We're only getting it from their point of view. So that was that was important for me to hear because the, you know I'm willing to give them more credit than, but it's a very different bent with them being quasi cultish. I think there there there's so much interest that that are in, that's buried in the deviants and Jack explored it a lot and it's this uh, I mentioned Lucifer from Paradise Lost and we could talk about the monster from Frankenstein right it's this idea that uh, a creator turning his back on the thing he created. And that sets up all kinds of resentment and bitter feelings. And I know I, I was sort of rooting for the deviants in the first, in, in Kirby's run. And I, I remember saying something to you all at one point. I was like, well, if these, if these Eternals don't get more interesting, I'm, you know, like I want the deviants to win, you know, <laughs> but I, they're, they're fascinating to me in a way. And when you go to Gaiman's model of them, they just become... Yes, he's kind of modernized them. Uh, they feel very Lovecraftian, but to me, they also feel a little bit two-dimensional and a little bit of a stab at religion. And I, I just, I'd I found them less interesting than Gaiman's. Well, and it's it's interesting in how Jack portrays them. I absolutely agree. There's more to 
the deviance than meets the eye because you've got Crow who is incredibly noble. And then you've got an eternal like Druig who's incredibly deceitful. And so there's no one race is perfect. Although Jack comes out in issue one and says the deviant exclamation mark, an ever changing and destructive failure. So again, this is coming from Icarus's mouth. So again, now you have to read through it as I'm an eternal. So of course the deviants are a failure, whereas the deviants probably don't see it that way. They actually controlled the earth until the great flood, which was brought about by the second host to wipe away the wipe away the the elements or civilization of the deviants that had come in. But I just feel like there's so much more mythology. Now I'm a big mythology fan. I am, uh, you know, the Greek mythology especially, but also Norse and other mythologies, and also a fan of Joseph Campbell who teaches a comparative mythology in that the same themes appear throughout all mythologies of all humans and kind of point to some underlying archetypes. And I feel like that's where that's where Kirby was going with this. And I don't feel like Gaiman really taps into that at all. So from my perspective, you know, and total disclaimer here, this is completely nostalgic for me. You know, these were the first comics I pretty much read as a kid, but there was a strong synergy to other things that were going on in my life, like being a fan of Edith Hamilton's mythology, you know, and reading that cover to cover. So definitely there was, you know, I don't know if one fed into the other, or if the comics fed into my love of mythology, but I love the fact that, you know, Kirby's introducing this forgotten character who's meant to be a monster slayer who fought undoubtedly all of these different deviant mutates, but they, you know, it was probably a Gilgamesh or a Hercules type character. I feel there was so much richness to be explored. And the fact that they got cut short so quickly, I actually went back and looked at it and I was like, well, why the heck didn't they bring Crow and the other guys forward more? And it seemed like there was enough there was enough story to tell on just the eternal side. And I wonder if that's kind of why Jack had a deviant or a, a celestial just kind of wipe out their entire underworld civilization. It seemed like with the the sweep of its hand, you know, I guess we'll never know at this point, but you know, Jack tends to just wander from, from story point to story point as, as you know, as much as on a whim uh, as anything else. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of unrealized potential in Kirby's story. And I think the biggest one is the, the idea that you have this celestial standing on two pillars and he's not going to move for 50 years and then he's going to pass judgment on humanity. And that almost like, even though that's like this huge, huge thing that gets dropped on us, it almost becomes non-relevant <laughs> after a while. It's, it gets lost a little bit and you're like, oh my gosh, that's such a great, and it's, it's picked up a little bit more in Kirby where the three races are trying to they're trying to work together a little more. Or there's this thought that maybe they're going to like come together to, to, um, show that they're worthy of continuance. Now, Angus, you haven't said much about the comparison between Gaiman and Kirby. What what did you think? How did you like the changeover and the kind of touches that Gaiman brought to it? I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan, not only of the modern mythology that he's weaved as he's taken previous characters that Jack Kirby has worked on, such as Sandman, and made them into a completely different animal. And he indeed does a very similar thing here with the Eternals characters, Neil really 
paid tribute to Jack, providing a link to Jack's legacy. However, he modernized the characters. And that is a theme here, which I think all of us in unison wholeheartedly endorse with respect to our reading experience. The other aspect that Neil brought to this was, man, this was really dark. This was a dark, dark tale. And I think the thing that summed it up for me was just the word crack at one point. I think we all know what that particular panel is in making reference to. But I did like the way in which Neil used the MCU characters as complementary characters. And they are not central to this. Bringing up the point that, yes, we made it a modern tale, steeping it in what was going on with Civil War and having to go ahead and register, and that many of the characters here that represent the traditional MCU characters, Iron Man in particular, and Wasp, were, you know, anytime they were having interactions here with the Eternals, they were, you know, always asking to, to register. This tale that Neil waves changed my mind on which character I liked the best. His portrayal of Cersei in this is hands down way better than the Athena character. Now, mind you, the Athena character is fine in Gaiman's, but I really enjoyed the Cersei character that much more written by Gaiman. I think he really leaned heavy into her, embraced how she was used throughout the Marvel Universe leading up to him now taking over this limited series and just did a phenomenal job there. So with that, where do we feel we are going to see the Eternals movie embrace legacy. Very clearly, Gaiman has made a compelling story here. Jack, I've always equated to being in the comics world, the equivalent of what George Lucas is to the movies, an incredible builder of worlds, getting things spun up and in motion. But as you brought up, Ray, JJ, and Doc, throughout our discussion here, he has not been the strongest as it's related to dialogue or building out particular story. Ray, what are your feelings on this? What do you think we're going to see on the screen? I think it's going to be like 80 or 90% gaming. Uh, he's just absolutely more filmable. The comic book reads like a movie. Um, it has a, a diverse cast, which is big. You don't have to do a lot of, I mean, with Kirby's cast, you'd have to do a lot of uh, gender swapping and getting some more uh, racial diversity in there. But in Gaiman's, it's more built in. It plays much better with the rest of the Marvel universe. So I, I really expect us to see uh, almost a pure Gaiman vision out of the movie. That would be my guess. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think we're going to get mostly the uh, the Gaiman version. Um, same for the same exact reasons. I think it's just more filmable. We can already see from the cast that they they are they do have a, a great diverse cast um, for the movie, which just falls in the line a little bit more with what, what, what game was presenting. I think um, as far as like the, the mythology as well, I think with with Kirby it may it may have confused a few people because of how you know just his writing style and like I said, he's a world builder. When you get down to the details, I think uh, Gaiman does a little bit. Some of the details maybe a little bit more digestible. Plus, Gaiman's was probably I might be mistaken, but I. Pretty much, I believe it is the most successful of all the Eternals appearances that we get, whether it's their own title or you know being kind of folded into the uh, the MCU. So I definitely agree that it's going to be 
Gaiman's vision that we see on screen. Oh, I have to agree with everything that's been set up in this point. I do expect some nods and paying of homage to Kirby, like we've seen in other movies in Thor Ragnarok. We saw the structures that had a Kirby-esque feel to it. So I, I hope that we do get some of that and acknowledging where all of this came from and who really gave us this gift of uh, the Eternals. But I expect it to be almost verbatim right out of the uh, Gaiman stories. I hope we get some of Jack's humor. Uh, Gaiman isn't, <laughs> doesn't have a lot of comedy in his. I think one of the big success, if if this Eternals becomes this huge success, I think what's going to really hinge on it is, I think it's going to be the treatment of the deviants. Are they going to just make the deviants the bad guy? You know, just this kind of like cookie cutter kind of bad guy that's the, you know, almost the leftover <laughs> of the good stuff that was made to make the Eternals kind of deal. Or are they going to like really put some effort into really, because I mean, let, let's face it with um, James Bond villains with, you know, a lot of different superhero comic books. It's always been the villains that are really the interesting ones. And I think if the, if the deviants are really, really, really created and really kind of molded into this really interesting character that aren't just one dimensional, but they have some layer, they're not just bad, but they're maybe they're bad because of this reason of X or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I think that's really going to, what will, what will send this over the edge. Um, I, I certainly hope we don't end up with the, the result of like another inhumans, which I think was very underdeveloped and, just the characters are so blah in the translation. I will make this unanimous here. I definitely feel that this is going to be the majority Gaiman, but the roots will definitely be Kirby. As we've seen by the cast that has been put through the publicity uh, announcement machine, it is very diverse. They've even gender swapped some of the characters. In addition to that, I would not be surprised if there isn't an embracement of the cosmic Thor now that you've got as Guardians of the Galaxy happening and there being also this connection, both from an eternal and deviant line to Thanos, they have a prime opportunity here to treat the deviants with a level of complexity, knowing that there is a bit of a tie there with Thanos, with Thanos having that, you know, deviant, esque look to him but being an eternal from titan they could really lean into that if they would so choose to there is some prime opportunity to tap into a lot of different inspiration how the characters have evolved over time but i definitely feel it will be the majority gaming so let's go ahead and provide any last thoughts here in closing out this Kirby Roundtable of the Eternals. JJ? I think the point that I want to make sure that our listeners take away is that there's a lot to be gained from reading the original material, the source material for the Eternals. There's a quality that you won't find anywhere else. So do yourself a favor and pick it up and explore it. And, you know, it just is what it is and appreciate it for that. I would say that I am jealous of JJ's experience with the Eternals. I think if I had that same experience where I was, you know, I just was kind of going into the comic book store or just going into the corner store and I saw it sitting on a rack and I picked it up then. I think I would have had a very different experience. I, I enjoyed it. There's no doubt about it. I enjoyed this. I think 
everybody should read it. I think it's a really fun read. Um, but just that whole, that brand new, like I kind of was aware of the Eternals before I picked up um, Kirby's, which was probably at least a decade later, if not two decades later. So if I would have had that original experience of just picking it up fresh off of out of the racks, I think it would have been a little bit more connected to it and that history there to it. But I think it's a great read. Again, I agree with JJ. In fact, in fact going back to the source material, because we know Marvel and we know their movies. We know there's going to be nods to Kirby. I think if anything, I can't remember which one of you said it with the humor, but we'll definitely, if there's going to be humor in it, it's going to be Kirby's humor that we're going to see in the movie. And I think you'll really appreciate it with, um, with going back to that source material. Um, the art is fun. The story is overall, it's really fun. It can be confusing at times, but you just, it's just one of those books you kind of sit back and you just enjoy it for what it is. You just have a fun time with it. Yeah, I think I think you have both said it really well, that it's it's worth going back to read Kirby almost as an alternate universe version of the Celestials now or the Eternals now, because I think the movie is going to carry forward something a little bit more main, uh, you know, mainstreamed in the Marvel universe. And I just, there's so much potential there. I'm a role-playing game nut and like as a, as a world for role-playing, I think it would be amazing, some of the things that go on there. And I also just want to say, Say, like just get your expectations ready it's a hot mess um you know this is jack kirby it, it, he's always a hot mess but he's a, an incredibly fun and awesome hot mess and so uh, don't expect it to be to have the, the kind of consistency and and you know woven story of a game and just enjoy the art and enjoy the craziness there's all kinds of influences on it obviously and one of them is like the language of the time, whether it's Macari saying to Margot, hang loose girl, or, 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 uh, I forget who said it to Cersei in the mirror, but he says, that's some funky corn, Cersei. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, I had to keep going back. I'm like, did he just say that in a comic book like this? <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So, Hey, JJ, doc Ray, I want to thank you all for coming on board and participating in this Kirby round table on the Eternals. And also doc, congratulations to you picking up the gig there. And this is Scott Scheuer over at comic book resource there, where you are covering some really great topics, including DC's run now of deceased. And for our listeners, to let you know, giving you a little little tease here, a little taste for next year in 2021, our Kudos Kirby run will be on Machine Man and our graphic novel for 2021's Jack Kirby Month will be The Demon. And we hope that you will join us for those reads. And again, thanks to JJ, Ray, and Doc for this Kirby Roundtable on The Eternals.